please turn in your Bibles. The passage this morning is Exodus 3, 1 through 10. So I'm excited to say that maybe for the first time in a long time, everybody in junior and senior high will be able to turn to their passage and have the Bible wide open. I might just point at you, have you each read. Be ready. We are going through the life of Moses this fall. Moses is considered the redeemer of the Old Testament, of course, pointing to Christ. Remember the setting uh, in Exodus was the Hebrews were in slavery. They had come to Egypt to get away from famine in Genesis, and they flourished. But now, by Exodus, we see several hundred years later, they're in slavery. We also saw a Pharaoh wanting to kill all the children, all the male children of the Hebrews. So Moses had a miraculous birth story that really imaged Christ's birth story. And then last week we talked about Moses as an adult going out to look upon his people and really caring for them. And that ended very badly for him. He murdered an Egyptian. Uh, so Pharaoh wanted him dead. His own people were saying, who are you to judge us? And so he leaves. And he finds himself in Midian married and with a son, and he says, I am a sojourner. And that's how he named his son Gershon. So this is where Moses is as we come to our story this morning in chapter 3. And the actual hero hero of Exodus is going to come on the scene in this passage. So you haven't met him yet, believe it or not. So with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 to 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is also considered Mount Sinai by most scholars, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw he turned aside to see God, or to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, That is, God said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that you would talk to us. We know Moses heard of you through a burning bush. And Lord, we have your scripture. We have your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And we pray this morning that this passage and all of scripture in your life, that we would better understand your mission and your love and your people in the particular way you called us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. One of my convictions about American Christianity, and I would, I would probably include my own life in this conviction, so I'm not separating myself, is I think we are very boring. And American Christians are really boring. You all think they're boring. I'm getting amens already. Let's, let's close it. We're boring, not necessarily in our lifestyles or our pursuits or our hobbies, but rather just our Christianity is boring. And I don't know why anyone watching us would ever want to follow our version of Christianity. Okay. With that in mind, I want you to think about the movie True Lies. Anyone? This is like a great movie. I can only, if you have to be like 18 or older. So if you're younger, just wait. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a hero. Um, kind of like a Mission Impossible agent guy, but his wife doesn't know this. His wife, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, thinks he's a boring, maybe an accountant or something, nothing offensive to accountants, but that's what she thought. And she needed, she needed a little zest in her life. So I think she decides, I'm going to go get a sports car, meets a used car salesman played by Bill Paxton, and he begins to lie to her, saying, I'm like a spy, and he's not, he's a used car salesman. And... Um, and she's just after some sort of excitement, right? Well, the, the movie ends up having like two storylines that converge. One storyline is the actual story of Arnold Schwarzenegger saving the world. Okay, you got that thing going on. But me, in the meantime, he's got to show his wife that he's like as cool as she's hoping for and kind of catching her in her double life. She's starting to try to lead. And it's really funny. It leads to a lot of humorous situations. But the main point is that eventually she realizes her nerdy, boring husband is actually the hero, right? And that's really part of the climax of the movie before he saves everything and they live happily ever after. And there's that place where she finally sees that her husband, who she loves, is actually the exciting person she was looking for. And that's what I think happens for Moses. Moses has been hanging out for about 40 years in the wilderness, bored out of his mind, knowing or hoping maybe somewhere deep down in the recesses of his mind that God had a plan of rescue that had been put on hold. And here he is, God just shows up in a flame of fire. And I would hope that for us, we would realize maybe God would show up for us as well. That maybe the God you think of when you think of God isn't as exciting as the real God. And that this could be even a turning point, right? Where the gospel could begin to change us to start believing in the God we see here in Exodus. So we're going to notice a few things about what God is doing to get Moses out of his boring uh, shepherding lifestyle. One, he calls him, he has a mission. He reveals that to Moses. Two, he invites Moses in. He actually commands him into that mission. And then three, he shows him that's a very risky mission, a very risky thing. So we're going to look at those aspects of this passage. First of all, God has a mission. The reason you're so boring, am I offending anyone here? Is because you and I often fail to connect our Christianity to the things we're really excited about. That's the mission of our life. When we look at this passage, if I said to you, what was the passage about? What was the majority of the text about? We would talk about the burning bush. But the most, I even cut off the explanation. Most of this passage is God explaining his mission. Starting in verse 7. 
where God begins to actually speak about the goal of what he's doing. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry, he says. And I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to rescue them. You're hearing that so many times because we're going through the life of Moses that you're already getting bored with that. So am I. We go, okay, we get it. He's going to rescue these people. But it's quite a thing to hear God say it, right? I'm going to rescue them. And not only am I going to bring them up out of Egypt, which is significant, right? That's enough. But I'm going to actually take them to this other land. And this is where it gets a little interesting. He tells Moses the people who already are there, like, Here's where the, this is where the Smiths live, and the you know he starts naming these people, right? These people group wasn't the Smiths, the Canaanites, the Amorites. I mean enemies. And he's saying this is the mission, this is where you guys are going. And then he says this: it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, I don't know how I'm not a you know into milk and honey. I don't really I'm not a rancher. I don't raise bees, but the, for those things to flourish and be there, the people have to be engaged. And what God is saying is He has a mission where He is bringing His people out with a purpose. And they're not just going to come out and hang out. They're going to go into a new location and they're going to flourish and they're going to worship Him. And they're going to begin to act as human beings were meant to act with flourishing. This is the world mission that we are in. And I'm afraid that for many of us, we have separated our view of the eternal eschatological idea of heaven in our daily lives. And that's where the boringness begins to set in. Have you connected what you're doing to mission? Now, I'm not asking if all of you are going into world missions. In fact, that's the problem. Most of us hear this kind of thing and think, okay, this is where the pastor can, you know, asks us to go overseas for a while or do something like that. Maybe. That would be awesome. I would love to have more of you and us going overseas. But the real question is, right where you are, if you made a list of all the things that you're involved in, your roles in life, husband, wife, student, roommate, right? All the things you are. And then draw a line to God's mission. Could you do it? Could you make a connection? How is my being a wife or a husband or a roommate or a student or in this occupation I've got four different roles or I serve on this board, how is that impacting the kingdom of God? And that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of prayer. But more importantly, it takes a passion to see that God would come in and use you. And that's really, I think, the heart of the message this morning is God is calling His people to His mission. So, I'm, I'm not only going to make you not boring, I'm going to make you a little afraid, because that sounds very scary, right? So, God's world mission, are you engaging in it? How does he do that? Point number two is he invites you personally to join in. One of the most astonishing things about this passage, I think, and I'm going to do a little recap so you even know what we're talking about, is the way he calls Moses. Here's Mo- I was thinking about this week, what would it be like to have a burning bush? Have you ever imagined that? A burning bush? The way the burning bush works, a couple of things. Number one, it didn't consume the bush, right? So there's no smoke. So whatever it looks like, it's just sitting like a flame, right? But it's also not only not smoking, it's not going out like you would imagine, but it's also not spreading. So at some point, I think Moses was like, this is awesome. I'm going to go check this out. 
So if you had to see this in your daily life, where would your burning bush be? I, for there's a tree outside the office, so that could be where I see a burning bush. Or maybe at the house, one of the trees. But what I realize is no matter what setting I'm imagining, I'm not imagining a setting near as lonely as he was in. Moses was by himself with sheep or some kind of grazing animal for who knows how long. And he's just bored. And he had gone from being raised with the Egyptians, right, and being in community to being isolated, at least at this point in his life. And he sees this bush. And so he goes toward it. How many of us would have, once we realized what was going on, hightailed it? I would have found the fastest camera, you know, out of there. And he's moving toward this bush. And all of a sudden, what happens? It says, the angel of the Lord. Okay, now I don't know that he knew this at the time. Next week we'll talk more about the naming of God and what was going on there. But all he knows is he hears Moses. Moses. It's highly personal. God, when he knows he's in Egypt, is speaking directly to him. Unless you make any mistake, in verse 6 it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's a very personal why. Well, it doesn't say, every, every time you read that phrase in the Bible from this point on, the word father is plural. But here he's actually saying, I know your dad. I knew, or I know, I'm in a relationship with the very father who gave birth to me. And Moses doesn't have a relationship with him. And then he goes on to say, and I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac. In other words, I'm calling you into a story personally. And so God is revealing Moses to Moses that he's being called into this mission we already talked about personally. And so the question is, are you in a personal relationship with Jesus? I almost want to do a raise of hands. How, how does that annoy you to hear that question? I bet a lot of us would go, I hate that question. Because a lot of us have been hit over the head with that. You know Jesus personally. But you have to look at Scripture and go, God is a personal God. And we, if we walk with Christ, are to have a personal relationship with Him. Do we have that? Have you had that? I, I feel like it's a, a pretty big tension, especially when you study the church history and, and ideas of like Presbyterianism or, or Congregationalism. When is a person a Christian? It's a tough question. I'm not going to dive into it too fully here. So I'll just say this. It's a fair question to ask. Have I, do I personally pray to Jesus? Do I personally read my faith? I remember reading an author, uh, I think it was a book on church, on, on disciplines of, of, of the Christian life, and it convicted me because he said, most of us read a lot of Christian books because we're afraid of our Bible. We're afraid of going straight to God. And I was convicted because I went to seminary, I love lots of books, you know, so what do you do if you're in seminary? You read your Bible all the time? No. You read, like, all these other They tell you about that. And this, this writer said, it's like Moses himself, who they just kind of shielded the Israelites from God. He became sort of the intermediary that kind of protected them. And of course, we know, we talk about how he's a picture of Christ. In that sense. But there is a sense of, of maybe even slight disobedience that the Israelites really didn't want to get too close to I think we have that habit. Our Christianity is very boring. 
we get very bored in our Christianity because we want other people to act for us. And has that happened to you? Has church become this place where you just go to the you come up, and you can you sit here, you look at the worship guide, you can go out of the lighting room, you can do that by lunchtime. We just go through all the notes. My hope and prayer is that you would begin, if you haven't already, to actually see Christ in the place of Scripture and in your time of prayer, that, that it becomes real for you. I was actually talking to Emily about the burning verse this week, and, and we both kind of realized part of us think that this burning bush would be amazing, that maybe if we had that experience, we would like to talk to God more, right? But what Eddie did and what he had all the students do is show us that what we have in our scripture is far greater. Right? I mean, that burning bush experience ended, and Moses had to walk away and go carry out the things God told him. But we have a we have a scripture that we can turn to all the time. And it's living and active. And the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, dwells in us and opens our eyes to Scripture and it becomes enlightened. I am purposefully saying these things knowing that the majority of you are either tuning me out, I get that, or are feeling kind of frustrated. Like, this is feeling like a lot of law, a lot of things. And it is. I mean, it is. Um, I know that it would be very easy to just say to you, read your Bible more. And you should. That's the challenge. That's the challenge of this passage. Is on one hand, God is very personal. And he's there. But there's this last thing we want to look at, and that is God is risky. I think for me, as I studied this passage, the thing that really jumped out to me was this initial interaction with Moses. God says, Moses, Moses. And what does Moses do? He obeys. He walks up to the bush. Here I am. And what does God do? He does something, I think, almost very rude. Stop! Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. Right? It feels very harsh. And I think we've become so accustomed to God being exceedingly personable that we struggle with this idea of His reverence and His holiness. And yet God is holy. Okay, so what's going on here? Why does he say take off your shoes? God uses, when you read through Scripture, God uses things that they understood to make sense. And at that time, this is, there's not a perfect answer. This is the most likely answer. When you would go visit anybody in that culture that had their tent, they were important, you would come in, but you would take the shoes off. That was a sign of respect. That was a sign they are honorable. They are more honorable than you are. Right? And so for Moses to start walking closer, God needs you to let him know, stop. What's going on here is much bigger than you realize. I am infinitely more important than even in grasp right now. So it was a gracious thing. Stop. Take off your shoes. But I had always read it as he took his shoes off and kept wandering closer, but he didn't. He took his shoes off and he couldn't come any near. It was as close as he could get. And God is holy. What does holy mean? That God is set apart? Okay, what do you what do you think of when you think of your holiness? When I was in seminary, we went to um, I went to seminary. I come from Heritage PCA. That was the only PCA church in Oklahoma City. 
Not that I was looking for other ones. I like our church. But when we got to St. Louis, there were 21 PCA churches. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't have gone to other churches. Listen, you guys can go to whatever church you want. For me, I thought, well, I want to go into the ministry of PCA. I'm going to look for a PCA church. So Emily and I began going to like every PCA church in town. And we found a church where they had a guest preacher, it was Sinclair Ferguson, and we fell in love with the church. And then we realized, well, that was Sinclair Ferguson. He's not going to be... He's not going to be there every week. And like the third time we were there with the real preacher, I'll never forget, in a southern accent, and I have nothing against the South, he said this, holiness, happiness. He said it three times. Every time he said it, I just felt like he was driving a dagger. Because it just, something in me did not grasp what he said. I never had talked about what he meant. But um, I realized I had a problem with this idea that God is holy. For me, I felt like then I can't be loved. Then I can't be accepted. I am on the outside. Now I want to just unpack the concept of holiness a little bit before I debunk that concept. First of all, it means different or set apart, but not just different and set apart, but better. Right? And I think we all get this. Um, I remember also a friend of mine, while we were in seminary, a lot of life happened there, told me, hey, there's a new thing Apple's going to do. They're going to take their iPod and make it into a phone. I remember thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't imagine. Oh, I have one. I, but just, did anyone else react that way? Apple's going to try a phone? That is so dumb. But we love it, right? Some of us. Some of you hate it for the same reason. Um, we love innovation. They come out and make their announcements every September. Um, we love what they're doing. And, and what, it, what it tells me that I love it so much is that I, I realize we need better things, that things aren't as good as they could be. It, it's across the board. I heard, a, I don't know if this is true, I haven't researched it, but I heard somewhere that in 1900, thereabouts, the, one of the U.S. patent offices said we're going to close it in. It is all over. There are no more patents to be had. We've got all the patents you could possibly ever want, and innovation is over. And of course, that's ridiculous. So, what is it about innovation? It's the sense that our world is not as good as it should be. But there is something infinitely better. And can you imagine, if you walk up to the burning bush, and God is sitting in there, and he looks like your Uncle Steve. He says, hey, what's going on? Want to watch the football game? I mean, that would be neat for like three minutes. For some of us, it would need a little longer until the game is over. But then you would finally go, is this all you have? So there's this reality in God's holiness that He is completely and utterly perfect that creates an extreme tension in us. We want it, but we don't know how to get it. When that pastor said holiness is happiness, I wanted to believe that. I wanted that. But that afternoon, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by the guilt of my sin and the lack that I have. That I'm like, I can't get that. And so here's Moses being told, take off your shoes. You are at the edge of perfection. And yet that same God says, and I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to rescue your people. I'm going to use you to do it. This is the secret, then, to how to not have a boring Christianity. When you can recognize, reconcile the personal nature of God with the holiness of God. The love of God the personal nature of God, the fact that He looks at you and He loves you 
while still a sinner, and yet at the same time, he's a God who is holy and untouchable. You have to have both. And what you'll find is most people, and most of the time, groups, religious, religions, philosophies, or even all of us individually, gravitate toward one of those or the other. Either we really like the fact that God's holy, we talk about that a lot, but we're kind of jerks. We treat people very poorly. Or we say God is love and He's wonderful, and then we, we just don't do anything about it. And we don't really talk about God to anybody, and our lifestyle doesn't change, and we do nothing involved in missions or tens of or anything like that. How do you reconcile the two? Well, we'll talk about that later. There's a lot of tension in that We've talked about this in joking with our Jesus is the answer. Listen to the chapter chapter 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence in the holy places by the blood of Jesus. But here's Moses, who later we're going to find, by God's calling, build a tabernacle. In the center of that tabernacle is this place called the holiest of holies. It's like the burning bush, only it's in this tabernacle, which later be the temple, and you cannot go in. Not only can you not go in, nobody can go in but the high priest. And even that person is terrified to go in. They're terrified they're going to walk in and die. So they built this system where they would wear bells, and if the bells kept ringing, they knew they were dead. They quit moving. And then they built the system with a rope, so if they died, they could rope them out. So the carcass could come out of the holiest of holies because you can't go in and rescue them. Right? That's how serious this place is. Right? And this is God, and he, we, we want that God, we love that God, but we don't know how to go near Him. And then Hebrews tells us, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who comes. So here's Moses standing at this bush. And however many thousands, 3,500 years later, we're at the bush, and instead of Jesus saying, Vote for Moses. Does that sound too good to be true? Um, this week I wasn't involved in choosing any of the music, but this, one of the songs that was chosen and it's one of my favorites before the throne of God above. We sing this stuff, guys. We sing this every week. Not this song, but we stand and we sing. It doesn't sink in. Listen to these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him, there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And in verse 3, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am. This song is saying the great unchangeable I am is Jesus. Because that's the scripture teaches. Because that is true. The angel of the Lord that calls Moses. 
is Yahweh. And it's also Jesus. It's the Trinity looking on you and pardoning you. And the song goes on, One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior. And my God. If you know that to be true, it will unleash in you freedom. Because the only reason you're boring, and the only reason I'm boring, and we are, is because we don't believe this fully. We believe it a little bit. And I'm not saying you're not saved. But many of us are saved, and we believe this in our head, but in our hearts we walk around with despair, with condemnation, with fear, and the story is not connected to the mission of God. And so it's sort of this thing on the side. We have our lifestyles and the things we do over here. And we have maybe this future fire insurance over here that God is reconciling in his life. Is your life lived out to the mission of God? Is it exciting? And do you know that he's called you personally and saved you? Is that your hope?